Hi, thanks for joining us for Indestructible, the podcast connected to the show, created by Proteus and touring nationally in 2024. I'm Mary Swan, Artistic Director of Proteus and Director and Writer of Indestructible, the show. And my guest for this edition is Paula Varjak. She's an artist working performance video and participation, making work as a way of making sense of and communicating with the world. In every show she makes, she aims to find the balance between making audiences question themselves and feeling like they've had a fun night out. Paul has been commissioned to make work by the Barbican, Battersea Arts Centre, amongst many others, and she's been involved in the creative process for Indestructible from the very start and is creating the digital fictional exhibition related to the show. Paul has joined me today to talk about her practice as an artist, her views on if we can separate the art from the artist, and her experiences as a woman in contemporary theatre. Hello, Paula. Hello. <laughs> I thought it would be quite interesting to talk about your practice as an interdisciplinary artist, and particularly your work in the digital realm, because that's some of the stuff that I've really, really enjoyed and sort of participated in, and how you managed to make that participatory. So my whole relationship to that nebulous word we call digital, which I sort of hate because like, what does it even mean? Like sometimes people mean it's made with digital equipment and sometimes it's shorthand for work that it's online. But I guess first and foremost, I'm really interested in popular culture. And I think you can't talk about popular culture without talking about digital culture because they're so intertwined. In terms of making it participatory, I'm always thinking a lot about audience, including the unseen audiences that we might interact with online. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that in particular in 2020, when I couldn't access a live audience in the way I was used to with my theater work. And so it became this kind of deep meditation. And who is it that I'm talking to and I want to be talking to? And how do I center that audience in the relationship I have as a maker? And that led to me making a, a whole series of different digital experiments. And then me and my art collaborator, Chuck Blue Lowry, making I, Melania, which was a show that you saw that fully took place on social media and began and ended on a platform called Gather, where you arrived as an avatar and saw the audience before the show began. And then you could come back to that space to have a post-show conversation as your avatar. Oh, it was great. I loved I, Melania. And when you talk about unseen audiences online, just explain a little bit more about that. So if I think about making a piece of work for a theatre audience, most of what I've made is, is a solo show, but it still has a sense of dialogue. Everything I make has direct address. I'm only interested in my own practice and making stuff that acknowledges the fact that the audience is there. And it's very much pitched to and for them. But if I'm writing a social media post or if I'm writing a blog or I'm posting a video, I don't know who it is necessarily that's interacting with that. I might have some ideas from looking at analytics, but I don't have that immediate sense of who I'm connecting to. And I guess actually where it starts for me is that I was a blogger before I was a performance maker. So in a weird way, I guess my practice is kind of also rooted in the internet for that reason. And me coming to performance came from me writing blogs, telling stories of characters and experiences I was having when I moved to Berlin some time back. And suddenly the audience for these blogs was growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And I knew who some of them were, but I didn't know who any all of them were. And I got really aware of this idea of having an audience, of posting something and then seeing how many views that it had had, but not necessarily knowing where those views came from. And I got quite excited about that. 
And that then led me to going, actually, I don't just want to be making work for that audience. I want to know what it's like to tell these stories in person. And so there's this very bizarre, like, cyclical loop of talking back to the audience online, but hopefully trying to figure out more ways to do both like we are on this project. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because the way you describe that journey of developing your performance practice feels almost much more akin to performance art than theatre, essentially. Have you always been quite interested in performance art? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in theatre mainly because we don't find out what performance art is when we're young people, or certainly like I didn't. I didn't even know about the idea of solo theater, I think, until I was well into my early 20s. And by that point, I'd actually already gone to drama school to study technical production. But I think as soon as I became aware of solo theater, and then at the time in the late 90s, there was performances happening in clubs and like physical theater was a really big thing. And the idea of dance theater, like all these other sort of realms came up. And then I think I also got really excited in what were then also referred to as like monologists. So specifically performance artists who were telling their own stories in first person, the whole kind of balding gray lamp on the desk. I was really excited about that and as a form of someone who was telling their actual true life story to an audience that was very resonant for me for some reason. And I think in part it's because alongside theater, I've also always been very excited about documentary. And so maybe there's something about it drawing in both of those forms. Yeah. And you you were saying you sort of came to it from training in a technical background. What made you start making work as opposed to technically supporting work? Oh, yeah. Well, the funny thing is the original dream was to be a director. So my cunning plan as a teenager was that I would train to be a stage manager, which would mean that would be a job that I would get when I graduated. That would mean I'd also be working very closely to the director. And then eventually I would gain enough experience where I could start directing my... That was the idea. And then I went to RADA and I. it was a really important experience for me to go there in terms of training but it completely killed my love of theater and I think that had a lot to do with not feeling excited about the shows that we were producing some issues to do with race in class within the culture of the course definitely the division between the acting students the technical students was really really dire and also I suppose mostly the people in the technical theater course weren't really interested in talking about theater they were proper techies who were just geeks about set building and design or whatever so for me at interval to be like I don't really know about this Lorker play what do you guys think like that was not (laughs) I did not fit I was very much an outlier and so I ended up going into film instead and video production and it was only like years and years later having had a career in that that blogging was just this thing that I was doing. I found it exciting to tell these stories to an unknown audience. And then it was almost a joke to go, oh, well, what would happen if I performed some of these live? And as soon as I did, there was nothing else I wanted to do. And that's kind of been that, really. Which is great. And the the show that you've had out recently, The Baby Question, is essentially a film, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. But both The Baby Question and I, Melania, and the iterations that they landed in, are very much products of the pandemic because I, Milani was also meant to be a stage show, like a very multimedia stage show. There was going to be like projection and like screens everywhere. And then it became a digital performance because we were meant to have this industry showcase at the Barbican March 18, 2020 or something. And the baby question was also meant to have a two-week run at Summer Hall and like a three-week run at Battersea Art Center. Obviously, none of those things happened and everything was canceled. And so first with I, Melania, it became, well, Chuck and I had all these residencies set and we thought, okay, well, 
we've got the time. Is there a way we can continue to develop the show when we can't be in a room together? And that led to this whole collaborative online remote practice that both of us very much still draw from. And with the baby question, my producer at the time, I just remember saying, oh, you know, what if it wasn't a theater show? What would be a digital show? And, and at first I was like, absolutely not. It is meant to be live and people have to be in the room. And but then the more and more I thought about it, it became, well, it's that or maybe it never happens. And that felt worse. And I guess the other thing with the baby question is we'd always conceived it as being set in a TV studio. Like the framing of it was the live recording of a top of the pop style show. So it wasn't a huge leap to just make it for screen. And by that point, I'd been working more and more with Chuck and Chuck has like a film background as as well. And so it just made sense. And now again, it's one of those things where I can imagine it as a theater show, but I'm so excited about the form that it's landed in. It feels really right in it. And it also means we have much more flexibility with how we screen it. We've screened it in theaters and art spaces, obviously, but we've also screened it in cinemas. We had a really interesting screening actually for 90 junior doctors as a part of their training. And now we're really looking at schools. So removing it from the theater means that there's all these different ways that you can present the work. And it's an interesting piece because it does retain its theatricality. It's not a film, but it surprised me in a really good way because your concept was that there's a live host And so you were saying sort of in some places that's been a DJ. In our case, that was the wonderful Becky Bubala, who's our cabaret hostess extraordinaire. And you had bingo and disco and cocktails at yours. We did. We did disco, musical, bingo and cocktails. But it was such an interesting concept to have this very theatrical film and then... Becky doing the disco, musical bingo and all, but then also getting into some really serious questions that the piece raises... And for me, that was so fascinating around how that participatory element came in with the audience in a way that I had not expected at all. I wonder if that's, uh, is that something that you're looking at exploring with, with work coming up? Yeah, I mean, I think everything comes back to this idea of what is my relationship to audience and who is the audience and what is the role of audience? And I think again with the baby question, I mean, initially our first idea was that it would be a stream like live performance. And the more and more we got excited about what we could do in camera, what we could do with editing, like poor Chuck, I think it kind of ran away with it. And so we ended up basically shooting a feature in four days, which I 100% do not recommend to anyone. And the fact that we all continue to love each other is a testament to how wonderful that team is because it could have very easily gone another way. It was incredibly stressful. But I think even in making a screen-based work, I guess the other thing I remember in this period of like the acute stage of the pandemic is that I remember that there was a film coming out and I think it was a sequel to Candyman. I don't remember Candyman was a horror film also, I think 90s, early aughts. And I remember the filmmaker deliberately delaying it because she was absolutely adamant that it had to have a theatrical release at a time that lots of films were just being pulled and going straight to streaming because it just felt like... There wasn't a lack of confidence about how much would audiences return to cinemas. And she was absolutely adamant that as a horror film and as a horror film pitched also at an African-American audience, it needed that sense of community that you get when you watch a film together. 
And I think that also left an impression on me of like, well, what does it mean actually, even if we make a screen-based work, to really stand on the fact that the work can go wherever it goes, but there is something particularly we want to hold on to about the audience being together when they watch it. And that felt really important with that project specifically. Yeah, no, I can see that completely. I just think there's something fascinating around where all this might go because working on Indestructible, which is much more probably <laughs> enormously for you traditional piece, although there is, you know, we break the fourth wall and there is some, there is audience interaction on it. But the idea around also playing with things like artificial intelligence, which we were doing in the making of it, what do you see that influencing in your work? How do you think you might be using that in the future? I don't know. I've, as I said, like this is uh, stylistically very different from the way I make work in some ways, but also has taught me so much that I want to draw from in terms of having other people in the room collaborating who are literally that collaborators without set roles that are just feeding into the process. That was really interesting and inspiring for me. And then even at this later stage where we've done preview recently and the fact that you've got this very curated steadfast invited audience that you can bring in that stage and and be really discursive with them after normally like I hate the feeling of scratches and like this open dialogue but it's clear that it's a nourished long-term relationship and it's nice to also hear people disagree on points normally I'd be like 100% I don't want to work in that way and after that evening I was left going actually maybe I should talk to Mary about us like scratching my next thing here with this specific group of people because this feels quite nice The Indestructible podcast was produced for Proteus Theatre by the brilliant team at Creative Kin Getting the right people behind your podcast is so important and Creative Kin were a great choice to make our show. If you're an ambitious brand keen to expand your reach, go to creativekin.co.uk forward slash launch to find out how you can reach a new audience. Tell us about the website, the exhibition. Tell us all about it and hopefully we can get some people to go and visit it. Yeah, so it's the website for Mocha North, which is the gallery that is representing. <laughs> you you can't see this, but like Mary is glowing. So this, she's very tickled by this idea, and I'm glad. Mary gave me this great provocation, which is just, I want some kind of digital complementary artwork. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Like, is it a recreation of the work? Is it some video version of the work? And then having sat in the room, the generous offer of being in the room, suddenly it occurred to me that the whole show was revolving around this exhibition that was going to happen. And so I thought, what if we show that exhibition? Like, we're not showing the exhibition in the show. It's alluded to in some of this beautiful projection design that Chris has done. What do we fully extend that? Mary was like, oh, I love that idea. Then it became okay, well, where would you look at the website? Initially, Ben and I were just talking about it being an online gallery. And then we decided to take a step further and go, no, we're going to make the Mocha North Gallery, which has the website, the image gallery. And then it became like, well, what would be the elements? It's like there might be an interview with the artist. There would be some blurb. You could download an exhibition guide. And the current stage we're at is thinking about what are cheeky ways we can kind of link through to the actual show. So anything, for example, that would normally take you to where the gallery is, like how to get here or contact us and so on, all of that will link through to the website for Indestructible. 
But the idea is that it's something that people see the show, can look at after, and will extend the world of the show, but also blur the fact and fiction of the show a bit, which is what I'm particularly excited about. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, <laughs> it looks fantastic. And we've had so much fun. And if you were photographing Mary Rose, who's playing Catherine, you're referencing sort of Marina Abramovich and Sarah Lucas and all those guys. How's that been in terms of recreating the artwork? Because you've also been talking to some artists, locals to us in Basingstoke, around being featured in the exhibition as the emerging artist too, haven't you? Yes, yes. Because within the show, the idea is that she's curating this show, which is featuring the largest showing of her work, but it will also feature all these other female artists alongside her, some that are more established and some that are more emerging. And so within, particularly within the emerging artists, it was like an opportunity to open it up to real working artists. And, you know, you gave me that brilliant contact with Naomi Escott, who's been incredible in linking to meet people. But what that also means in terms of the website is that when you click on their images in the image gallery, you will go through to their their Instagrams or websites and they're all they're all real working artists. So these are the places where the is this a real gallery or not? Is Catherine a real artist or not? Is Catherine a real artist that the actress Mayor Rose is playing? Maybe like it's been written and portrayed in such a way that that's what it seems. And that's sort of the juicy bit. Yeah, I really like that too. You know, you have to dig <laughs> to find out what's real and what's not real. But yeah, it's been a really interesting journey, hasn't it? Talking to some of those artists and sort of thinking about how to feature them. And we have a link through to the Lee Miller estate on there as well. And that's been great. And that's been fascinating as well, I think, dealing with with real artists too in this and realising what those gatekeepers are for us to access them. Because I think that's the one thing this website does is makes you realise how difficult it must be for visual artists. We find it hard enough in theatre to get the name out there, get the work out there, but you realise how difficult it is for visual artists to break through, isn't it? It's crazy. And so for the people that I've spoken to in visual arts, what interests them is... It's a very unique way, obviously, for a theatre show to be working with some kind of digital output. But it's also a very unique way for visual artists to be linking to and profiling their work within a fictional world. So the whole thing just becomes very conceptual, but hopefully in a way that's, that's quite playful. Yeah, no, totally. I think that's the nature of the piece, isn't it, as well? Commenting on, commenting on a lot of things, but commenting on the visual art world as well and what that means and... That playfulness is definitely what I love about your work and that's definitely in there. In terms of talking about art and artists, one of the central things we talk about in the show is separating the art from the artist and can we do it, should we do it, how do we tackle that? And I don't think, you know, no one's suggesting there's a definitive answer, it's a process, but I've been asking everyone, is there a particular person where something came out about them that disappointed you more than anyone else? Yeah, I think probably my biggest one is is Woody Allen. But it's interesting because when I think about people who really get tied up in knots about artists who let them down when they discovered something about their past or brought their behaviours. Like, for example, I had a lot of straight male friends who really have never gotten over Louis C.K. And I think it's rooted in this idea of when an artist's work or the idea of their character really speaks to you and you really identify with them. 
I obviously don't identify with Woody Allen, but as someone who, you know, one of my early dreams of being a filmmaker and loved romantic comedies and and loved uh, his use of dialogue and his sense of humor and even didn't mind that he was kind of telling the same story over and over again. Like, I liked that about his work. And I was, you know, Manhattan in particular was absolutely one of my favorite films, a real formative, led me to want to be a filmmaker kind of film. And I think when I think specifically about that film, Manhattan, and also about Kill Bill, which was another one of my favorite films of Tarantino, it's not that I would think any less of anyone who continues to like their work or likes those films. And I still think that they're really strong films. But once once I know about the behaviors that happened on set of both of those films, I can never enjoy either of those films ever again. And that makes me feel really sad because because I would love to watch Manhattan on a rainy day like today. But once you know some things, you can't unknow them. And then how you process that and how you hold it is difficult. But then I'm also, I'm a queer person who loves hip hop and that has involved endless workarounds in my life around that culture. Maybe slightly less so now, but it's one of those things. So I think it's really interesting the mental gymnastics you will sometimes put yourself through to still hold on to art that holds meaning for you or maybe you just like to dance to when you hear like there is also this thing of would I still dance if someone played blurred lines at a party like maybe and then at some point I might still be a bit like oh god yeah but on another night if I was really drunk I might just dance to it I don't I don't know yeah it's really difficult isn't it Woody Allen's come up before actually almost out of everyone maybe Michael Jackson as well being the other one but I think that for most people it's incredibly crushing and disappointing it's a tricky one but you were saying about kind of for you it's around behavior on set as opposed to whether or not whatever else in his private life might have happened yeah I mean I think there's something it's one thing to go like here's an older man who continues to tell the story of him being involved with much younger women who are always incredibly stunning who find him absolutely irresistible I have no idea what he's like in person maybe he's incredibly charming I think it's possible given the way many actors talk about him but to then find out that he is casting women in that role and then in the filming of it, he is taking advantage of that situation when he literally has all the power on the set because of the role with, with an actress who's at the beginning of her career and is like 15 or 16. I mean, it's a different issue, but with Kill Bill, the idea of like Tarantino spitting in Uma Thurman's face, I can't let go of that now. I think another maybe for me, like good example... I'm a big fan of Community, the TV series, and Dan Harmon, the creator, was pulled off of Community because there was this whole really nasty situation with him being obsessed with, like, again, much younger female writer on the team. And it just, the whole set kind of ended up breaking down because the tension got so bad. But the thing that I respect about Dan Harmon is, like, after the fact, you know, he came back and he said, I knew my behavior was wrong. And the dirty fact is I just went ahead and I did it anyway. And I feel like I hadn't heard that up until that point, particularly with men. I heard a lot of men saying I wasn't really aware or if someone was offended then. It was like, no, actually, I own up to the fact that what I did was unacceptable. It hurt my marriage. It hurt, like, the project that I made, which was also, like, the lifeblood of a very, very large team of people. And to just fully stand by that. The other thing that I've asked a lot of people is around what 
your experience as a woman has been. And obviously a lot of that in Indestructible is around Catherine as a female artist and the hidden aspects of it. Do you feel things are getting better or do you think we're kidding ourselves? Or <laughs> God, it's so difficult. I, it's really difficult to answer that. I mean, I don't know specifically if I can speak to differences in terms of being a woman, but I just think in terms of general relationships to various sides of being marginalized, like being a person of color and being queer and so on as well, Thinking about when I was in, like most of my education, to be honest, even though I trained with some really incredible people and I went to really brilliant institutions, for example, like when I went to film school, I was one of maybe like four women in my year. We literally had a class where one of the teachers who was in his late 60s, maybe even early 70s, one of these like retired Riverside studio guys said, oh, well, you ladies will be all right with this because you know how to lace sewing machines. So, you know, if I think about that or if I think about experiences I had in drama school where me and like a handful of the other people of color who were in the acting course would be like quietly getting together in like a corner of the canteen going, oh, this made me feel a bit uncomfortable about this behavior with other people in my cohort or I won't even get into like casting decisions, Mary, that have, I mean, that is like, I would say like a national issue when it comes to drama training, unfortunately, probably still. But I mean, equally, teaching in higher education in the in the last years, I've witnessed some pretty appalling behavior towards female students and students of color. I, I think things are better in the sense that if I look at young people, it seems like they have much more agency and clarity about addressing what they feel is like unacceptable behavior in their places of education, for example, in a way that I 100% did not feel like I could talk back to my teachers, like I could raise issues to people running those buildings. I felt like I just needed to get through the course and then find a way to work in the industry. And then even when I started to work, it was like, I'm going to have to work unpaid for this period of time. And I'm going to have to just make endless cups of tea. And eventually someone might notice me and give me an opportunity. And that did happen for me. But I really admire that the younger generations coming up now are like, why do I even need to be working for free? Why do I need to be making endless cups of tea? Also, I already have like a really exciting practice that can offer from this point now. Also, I can already reach this number of people within an audience without any kind of machine around me. And so in that way, I think things are getting better. I mean, you have daughters who are like, how how old is your oldest now? Going to be 21 in January. Yeah. So like, what kind of conversations do you have about this kind of stuff? Oh, huge conversation. I mean, she's <laughs> she's studying politics. She's okay. <laughs> slightly to the left of Marx, my eldest daughter. <laughs> she's, she's very very sure around calling out what she sees, sometimes to an extent that I worry a little bit about that. And I have to check my own dampeners on that of like, oh, don't call out too much. And my youngest is 17 and and both of them are very alive to where there are inequalities and where there isn't representation or where they're not seeing themselves or people of colour or... You know, they're both very much on the ball on that, which is really positive. And I think most of their friends are. But then as parents, we have rose-coloured glasses a little bit, don't we? So let's hope so. And also the young. So sometimes you kind of as life goes on, you get it a little bit beaten out of you. But 
<laughs> but yeah, I'm positive. I think they're definitely alive to it in a way that I definitely don't think I was at the time. So that's got to be a good thing. And I think there is also something that I think is rooted in internet culture. It's much easier for you to be aware of these issues on a global scale than it was when we were younger because, I mean, obviously, like, you'll have books by activists and so on, and you have, like, whatever is passed down to you by your parents and your friends and so on. Like, I grew up in D.C., which is obviously a very politicized city and scene and so on. But the fact that, like, right now you can share a story about something and, like, with a click of a key, you can instantly connect with loads of people who also have that experience, who can express solidarity... It's much easier to be aware that you are part of a larger tribe and that you are sharing struggles of other people than I think maybe it was before. Just to finish with, one of the things that I've asked everyone is to bring a female artist that you think more people should know about or to highlight someone <laughs> that you feel more people should know about. And I wondered who you were thinking. I don't know how to say her name. So I'm going to guess, and I'm really sorry, Myrna, if I mess this up because I don't know how to say your name. So if I read it phonetically, it's Myrna L. Bowie. She is a filmmaker. She recently graduated from NFTS in London, and she set up an initiative in the last months called Connecting Gaza. Basically, so I didn't know this, and I consider myself fairly techie, but as well as like actual tangible SIM cards that you have in your phone. You can also get eSIMs. And so eSIMs are basically like digital remote SIM cards that you can use in any phone. It also means you can use them in different territories. And so what she's done is through this Connecting Gaza initiative is basically coordinate for people worldwide to buy eSIMs, not activate them, send a screenshot of the QR code to this Google account that she set up for it. And then those eSIMs are being allocated to people in Gaza in order for people to be able to communicate when there's internet blackouts. I'm always really amazed by people who can come up with simple, resourceful ideas that instantly have a very practical implication to a cause, particularly a really dire situation that we're dealing with right now. And the idea that someone who I think is in her 20s as a film student who just graduated can be coordinating that from afar in a way that has been so effective, it's uh, mind-boggling. I love that. And obviously must have much wider implications. I had no idea that you could do a remote SIM card. That's incredible. Thanks, Paula. We have covered a lot of things. So thanks for joining us for Indestructible, a podcast connected to the show created by Proteus and Touring Nationally in 2024. If you like what you've heard, please share, subscribe and leave a five-star review. It really helps us reach other listeners. The next episode of Indestructible is available to listen to right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for this edition. I'm Mary Swan. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to your company next time.